Welcome to the next in a series of Ask a Chair podcasts brought to you by SAEM Rams. Hi, everyone. This is Vitos Corrales from Northwestern University, and welcome to another edition of Ask a Chair with SAEM Rams. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Tony Sapal at the University of Arkansas. Dr. Supal completed his medical education at Northwestern University. He then completed his EM residency at Carolina's Medical Center in North Carolina, serving as the chief resident during his final year. Dr. Supal is internationally recognized for his focus on evidence-based medicine and the application of science to healthcare. He was faculty director of evidence-based medicine for the EM track at McMaster University in Canada. He also taught EBM at New York Academy of Medicine and at Oxford University in England. Dr. Supal has been a principal investigator on numerous clinical trials in emergency medicine and has authored more than 40 peer-reviewed manuscripts. He now resides as the professor and chair of emergency medicine at the University of Arkansas. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Supal. I appreciate you taking the time to meet with us today. Yeah, Pete, it's glad to be here. This is exciting to be able to share some thoughts uh, with the audience. Great, great. Well, let's get started. In addition to your role as a chair, I have noticed that you're also the chief clinical officer for University of Arkansas's Medical Center. What are some of the challenges of holding senior leadership role in the academic institution, and what do you think kind of the benefits of having these leadership roles are? Sure. So I think having a leadership role in any of the positions that I currently hold or similar positions for others are, quite frankly, the same. And that challenge is how to be an effective leader for the people that you represent. And in this case, for me, I balanced my advocacy for emergency medicine, which is, of course, my one true love professionally. But as chief clinical officer, I also have a substantial amount of responsibility for the operations of UAMS and UAMS Health, which I would classify as all the moderate-sized healthcare system at roughly $1.5 plus billion a year. And so... The keys are, amongst many, is to be yourself. And what got you to those leadership positions, I think, should be what allows you to flourish and maintain the position as well as, you know, improve the areas that you were asked to take leadership over. That's awesome. Were you always interested in a career in administration or I guess what led you down that career path to begin with? So to be, to be quite honest with you, I never even thought or contemplated about having a role in certainly not hospital administration at about year 11 or so as a faculty member at Indiana University, I kind of got the bug to be a chair. It was what I thought the next step in my career would be. I got really fascinated with faculty development and I thought I knew I didn't want to be a program director but I wanted to be able to build something and create a legacy. And so I pursued chair positions. I never thought it'd be in Arkansas, quite frankly. I actually never had never been in the state. But it was a tremendous opportunity to build a program and a department that needed to grow. It was a very solid clinical department, but had a very small national footprint, a very small academic footprint. And I had a chance to take what I had been exposed to at Carolina's Medical Center and at IU, two programs I hold in very high esteem, and quite frankly, I think have done a lot of great things, bringing those concepts to the University of Arkansas here in Little Rock 
And we were very fortunate. We had an institutional commitment to grow. We were able to recruit and build quite a diverse and productive department. When I got here, we had no divisions. We had no fellowships. Uh, we didn't have a lot of leadership in the institution. We had something like six or seven faculty to staff a level one trauma center with 60,000 visits a year. We now have two EDs. We have 30 plus faculty. We have an observation unit, brand new clinical decision unit. We have three divisions. We have two fellowships and perhaps a third fellowship. We have faculty from all over the country. And I'm proud to say a very diverse faculty before the most recent events in our society that have, have placed diversity at the forefront. So, you know, those things and the behavior of emergency medicine here at UAMS led to, I think, more opportunity for me and for my department. About three or four years into my tenure, we made a, a shift in paradigm to a service line structure at UAMS, which pulled the clinical operations out of the academic department, leaving the departments with the education and research components of our mission. And we were very fortunate that emergency medicine became its own service line, allowing me to be the service line director as well as the chair. So in reality, my, my, my responsibilities didn't change outside of the fact now I had nursing reporting to me and anything that touched emergency medicine was mine with a triad leadership structure below me. That fortuitous kind of leadership change required me to report to the newly recruited chief clinical officer, a gentleman by the name of Steppy Mehta, who led critical care services at Maine Medical Center. And I mentioned that because the former chair of emergency medicine at Maine Medical Center, Mike Gibbs, was my program director at Carolina's Medical Center and is now the chair of emergency medicine at Carolina's. So one lesson to learn for the resident audience and others out there, very small world, beware of the bridges you cross and or decide to burn because it will come back to bite you. So <laughs> Dr. Med and I formed a fairly close relationship. I saw him as an inspirational leader and a mentor for me. And as things go in academic medical centers and other, quite frankly, centers, people with talent like Dr. Mehta tend to continually rise. And when the CEO position became available, he assumed that role. He asked me to take his position as chief clinical officer, which is, as I mentioned, not a position I aspired to, was never really even in my calculus. I was very happy to be chair and service line director. And trust me, my life was much simpler then as well. My wife can attest to that. <laughs> but you know, as a mentor and someone I felt I could learn from, I jumped at the opportunity because I knew that he and I had a moral compass that were well aligned. We thought along the same lines of innovation, challenging you know, people to improve our level of accountability and expectation for excellence. And quite frankly, I was intrigued by learning about a broader base of hospital operations and you know what exactly is a block schedule in surgery and why do ED physicians complain about the things that we complain about? You know, why does administration do nothing all day? What are they doing up there? Well, I learned really, really fast the answers to a lot of those questions. And I took the position a couple months before COVID hit Arkansas. And over the last year, it really has been a boot camp for me, as it has been for everyone in medicine in general, not just emergency medicine and not just administration. So that's my journey. I've been in this position now for a year. And while it seems like it was just yesterday, it also seems like five years ago, based on everything we've had to do and still challenge, of course, today with living in on both sides of the pandemic with COVID patients while maintaining busy hospital operations as close to normal as we possibly can. 
That's awesome. It sounds like it was a wild ride, even without COVID. So I'm sure that added yeah, a whole well, other layer it, to it. it. It still is, but it's a lot of fun. And, you know, I'll tell you, I, I can't emphasize enough how critical it is in whatever your career endeavor is, be it academic medicine, hospital administration, community practice, being part of a great team is what helps make you want to come to work every day. And quite frankly, makes it not work because if you enjoy it and you have passion for it, then you are going to be a happy person. You know, I love the people I work with here, both in administration as well as the other clinical leaders, uh, service line directors and chairs at UAMS. And of course, you know, love the people in my department. So it really is a joy to come to work and quite frankly, be a servant for these individuals, um, including our residents and uh, other staff. I know that you said that you never had an intention to be an administrator of any type, but obviously there's tons of medical students and residents who aspire to go into administration. What kind of advice can you give them in terms of positioning themselves to start down that path? Yeah, so I think a couple of things. Number one is develop yourself. Learn what it means to be a leader. And those concepts take time. Do not rush into it. Do not feel like you have to be the youngest CEO in the history of modern medicine or the youngest chair in emergency medicine ever. You'll know when you're ready. And at the same time, I will also share this, that as you ascend to different positions, be it in academics or, or in community, you are never ready for that position. When I took the chair position, I wasn't ready. I thought I could be. And there's no course, book, or single experience that can get you ready for what you have to deal with when you take on a program director role, a division chief role, a chair role, a CCO or CMO role or a CEO, because every organization is different. It has its unique challenges. As an example, when I became chair, I went off to Harvard and I took their chair course and it naively felt that, oh my gosh, A, it's Harvard and B, it's two weeks. I'll go get my bucket, come back and I'll be a great chair. Uh Uh-uh, not even close. It was a great experience, but you really don't know what to do until you get into that position. And I I share that not to scare people, but, but to make them aware that it's okay to be uncomfortable because that should be a stimulus for you to get better and to challenge yourself. And and I'll say this also, it is okay to fail. I've not met a single person in my life that has not failed. I've not met a great leader that has not failed. If you have not failed, then you have not led and you have not taken a chance. You've not stepped out of your comfort zone and you absolutely have to do that. And the other last perhaps piece of advice I I would give the listeners about leadership and and taking on the scary roles that press through is to have courage. If you are not willing to lay everything on the line for your team or your people, then they might not follow you. You may not be the leader. Now, I'm not saying stick your neck out and die on every single hill you come across because you won't last. So you've got to be strategic. You've got to be smart about that. But it is something to, to always consider. And learning how to be strategic about that and learning what hills you do need to fight on and or back off on takes time. It, it takes experience. Mentorship is important. No one figures this out on their own. I, I think those are important. Other questions I get asked is, should I get a second degree? Should, you know, do I need an MBA to be a hospital administrator? Do I need an MPH or do a fellowship of some sort to be a, a substantial researcher? The answer to that is yes and no. I've thought about getting an MBA or a secondary degree, and I just haven't had the time <laughs> to be quite honest with you. Every time I get thrust into a new position, I dive head deep into it 
and have maybe I have an MBA based on my experience in what I do on a daily basis. That's not to diminish the fact that having additional education and training is, um, it, I think, very important. And so if you have the vision as a resident or as a young faculty member, or even as a medical student, if medical students are listening, that you think your future is in administration or research or whatever the, the role may be, and you have an opportunity to get an advanced degree, I highly recommend it because if you follow my path, you'll never feel like you have uh, the ability the time or the bandwidth to do it. Um, I've been very fortunate that I've been able to uh, achieve what I have. And I'm thankful for that, that I did have to spend two years and $100,000 on an MBA. But if I had to do it all over again, I would absolutely have done that when I was younger, even though I'm, I'm not old, just when I was younger. You're telling me that you don't have the time to uh, be a student again and get your MBA for two years with all the other hats that you're wearing, huh? nor the patients, man. Let me tell you, sitting in the classroom for me is very, very difficult. <laughs> As it is for most EM world people. Indeed. We're not built that way. No. I'd like to ask you, I noticed that, you know, in reading up in your biography and everything like that, you certainly had a focus part of your academic career in evidence-based medicine education. And you've taught courses internationally focused on evidence-based medicine. Where did that interest come from and how have you used it both to further your own practice as a clinician, but also I'd imagine that's come in handy when you're using that to inform your practices as an administrator as well. Could you tell me a little bit about how you developed that interest and how that's helped you along the way? Yeah, you know, so I think the last part of your question there is where we'll start. Um, my interest and experience in evidence-based medicine has really helped me uh, both as a chair and as an operational leader for the hospital because it provides a really strong structure and backbone to the decision-making that I share and help others with throughout the institution. My pathway to that area of interest was really paved by a lot of dead ends and a lot of failed attempts in my early academic career to find a niche. When I graduated residency from Carolinas and I went to Indiana University, the the evidence-based medicine education curriculum there, in my opinion, was quite advanced. They, they had faculty there that had really taken it to heart, were teaching at international courses, had been to courses, and made it part of the core curriculum for the residents. And so I would go to journal club, and quite frankly, the interns knew more about evidence-based medicine than I did. And that was embarrassing, and I don't like to be embarrassed, and I'm quite a competitive person. I've got to win at everything, right? Who likes to lose? Second place is the first place loser, right? So you can't go into it thinking, I can't wait to lose. So I challenged myself to learn it. And by pure happenstance, the chair of my department, who also will profess to not know much about evidence-based medicine, was the course director for evidence-based medicine for the School of Medicine at IU at the time. And, and so he would jokingly say, look, I don't know what the hell I'm doing, but if, if I can do it, anyone can do it. And after having, as I mentioned, gone down a couple pathways that were kind of dead ends for me, um, he offered it to me and I, I took up the challenge because I was already kind of personally challenged with it. And then I went off to, I told him, well, you know, I'd like to get some more formal training in evidence-based medicine. So I went to the, the McMaster course. That was kind of the gold standard course. They were actually McMaster universities where evidence-based medicine was born. The, the phrase was coined there. And so I, I went there. I happened to be in the emergency medicine group with Peter Weyer, who is a longtime 
excellent educator in emergency medicine from Columbia in New York City. And my performance in that group as a participant led them to ask me to come back as what they call a tutor trainee. So I did that, paid my my dues, and then I was invited back to be an instructor. So at the same time, they were starting a course at the New York Academy of Medicine closer to their home base. They invited me to, again, be a tutor trainee, and then I became a faculty member there. And so then through some of my other connections, I kind of wiggled my way into an invitation to Oxford more so because it sounded really cool and I wanted to go to England. Let, let's be honest, it was a great trip. But the course there was fantastic. And I also worked my way to being an instructor at that course. And I, I just really enjoyed it. The camaraderie amongst those interested in evidence-based medicine and emergency medicine was strong. A lot of leaders, a lot of great mentors. And it allowed me to really supercharge my academic career. So I started a lot of writing and publishing. It helped me formulate my involvement in some clinical trials. It allowed then for promotion and a career niche um, that also included mentorship of young faculty at IU. We formed these publication groups. And before you know it, we were in Annals of Emergency Medicine every month, sometimes multiple times a month. Me and, and one of my other senior writers stepped off. The younger guys stepped up brought on more faculty, really became this kind of factory of evidence-based publications for the department and for the faculty. You know, so I'm very thankful that I really, again, just like my role as CCO, I feel like I happened across that opportunity and then I ran with it, had a passion for it, and did it as well as I thought I could possibly do it. Yeah, that's fantastic advice. I mean, it sounds like, you know, you really are interested in something or have an opportunity. Sometimes it requires going out and seeking out the, the best guidance that you can, wherever that might be, or in your case, it was at McMaster. And then also kind of the benefits of surrounding yourself with people who have similar interests or passions that are productive and kind of having that culture around you of, uh, can kind of certainly breed that productivity, which I think is excellent advice for anybody and anything that they go into, let alone evidence-based medicine. I also noticed, and probably a little bit of what you already talked about has alluded to this, but you've held multiple teaching awards from multiple different universities. And one of my things, I guess, about medicine in general and becoming a physician is that not only are we always learning on the job, but we're also always teaching on the job, especially in emergency medicine, whether it be residents or, you know, APPs or nursing, there's always learning and teaching to go around. What advice do you have, I guess, for medical students and residents as they kind of transition from that exclusively learner role to having to start thinking about how they're going to be a teacher? Yeah. So I think loving teaching is is the first step, being generous with the knowledge and experience that you have, uh, no matter what level you are at. If you are a, a resident, a young faculty member, or a more senior faculty member, you have something to learn. And, and I'll say this, I think one of the keys to a great educator is becoming a learner. And I'll tell you, I'm not embarrassed to learn something from a medical student or an intern. As a matter of fact, I love it when uh, you know someone and now almost everyone's junior to me i guess from an experiential standpoint but you know you can't know everything and there's so much out there right now with fomed and and various other points of access for education that challenges things like dogma and or what we know from randomized controlled trials or what we know from our esteemed professors that that we trained with you know if you show up to work every day with that mindset and i love the fact that you mentioned techs and nurses and the team that works in the emergency department. Because let me tell you something, you haven't worked in emergency medicine long enough if a nurse hadn't saved your butt or saved the patient, 
uh, because of some ridiculous mistake you were either going to make or made. And, you know, incorporating education for those individuals, man, let me tell you, when you teach a nurse something, there's a bond that forms almost immediately. And it, it is surprising how often that, that doesn't happen. We just don't take the opportunity to educate and, and also a shameless plug for managing up, you know, manage up the team. If you're a senior resident and a medical student saw the patient and you're following or the intern did, you know, talk about how great that student is or how great that intern is. And it's very frequent when I see patients, I tell them, you know, you got one of our best nurses in the department taking care today. You're going to be in great shape. If you need anything, ask me, ask them, we're going to take great care. You know, things like that enhances the educational environment because then everyone feels, quite frankly, they feel awesome. And, and people, I think, tend to learn better in an environment where they feel valued. So there's that aspect of it. And then, you know, be ready be ready to teach, which means that not only do you have the knowledge, but you understand your limitations. And so I still get asked questions. I have no idea what the answer is, and I probably should because it's in a textbook somewhere. It's okay to say you don't know. Even if you're the chair of the department who's supposed to, you know, quote unquote, know everything, nobody does. And as I said before, be generous with your teaching. And in academic emergency medicine, I think it's really important to fill some of those rare dead space times with education. So have some things tucked away in your back pocket that you could do, scribble on a napkin or whatever, making silly drawings about eye emergencies or another great tips and tricks in the emergency department, things you're not going to find in a textbook, like how do you make eyelid retractors or how do you make a blow dart gun? No, not the blow dart. Although I do know how to make a blow dart gun out of a chest tube <laughs> canister. You know, things like that. <laughs> that's just a fun thing as well as some things. And then lastly, I think the, maybe my last tip, and I, I can keep going on, I guess, is find ways to double and triple dip with the education. So if you come up with a novel strategy, publish it, submit it to SAM for the Innovations in Emergency Medicine presentation. Nothing gets students, residents, and faculty more excited than taking an idea they have or a method of teaching or something they came up with and turning it into scholarship, because now it's got one additional level of validation. So, you know, those are the kinds of things that I like to think about, uh, share with my faculty, share with our residents, and it really gets them motivated and excited about the educational environment and, and what they can produce for their own legacy, quite frankly. That's fantastic advice. You mentioned it's okay to fail, and I fail quite brilliantly and quite oftenly. And if it weren't for the nurses in intern year, I'd can't imagine how that would have went. So I can't agree more <laughs> that they save, save you on multiple occasions. And uh, you're exactly right that I think teaching can certainly help develop the bonds with your colleagues. And uh, also the importance of elevating those around you kind of makes the entire team work more efficiently. You know, you both have your educational interests as well as your administrative roles and also still a clinician. How do you balance all of those roles and how do you achieve a work-life balance when you also have a family at home? Well, you assume I have a work-life balance. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, so admittedly, I will say that I think about work-life balance a lot. I think I'm not really that great at it, but I do, I have open conversations with my faculty frequently about that. And, you know, what, what I've been able to achieve honestly could not have happened without my family. And so my wife, whom I've known, well, she'll tell you we've known each other since the seventh grade. We really didn't become a thing until high school. But she is someone who 
for whatever reason, has just completely understood how difficult academic medicine can be for a busy clinician and uh, academician. And she supported all of my crazy hours and all of my crazy travel and all of the weird things that we do, including taking on additional roles and being on 100 committee meetings, et cetera, et cetera, and getting calls on the weekend when an issue comes up or a faculty meeting or whatever the case may be. So having support outside of work is critical. And at least for me, and I think that's true of others, and and what I tell my faculty and I also tell myself is if you don't have happiness in your personal life, you're not going to have happiness at work and vice versa. And your personal life, in my opinion, trumps your professional life, period. I believe that 100%. And people are free to disagree with me on that. But let's be honest, you should be spending most of your time in your life with your family at home, outside of work, wherever that is. Work is work. It's a job. We have you know, things that we have to get done and things that we are responsible for. But at the end of the day, it is a job. And as much as I love my job and I'm passionate about our people and our patients, our students and our residents, it cannot come at the cost of my family. So how you accomplish that, I think, is really, there's not a one-size-fits-all. There has to be some basic understanding and basic fundamental things that have to happen. But then after that, there's a bespoke approach. I think that only you know what's best for you. But there's some, I think, some key things that I violate all the time. So if I have a couple of weeks ago, I finally took a week off during the pandemic. I'd worked several months in a row and I was hoping to go somewhere, but couldn't go anywhere. So, you know, I was a little disappointed about that, but it was a good staycation. And despite that, I still checked email, which I shouldn't have done. And I knew if something critical happened at the hospital that I would get involved. And that's not right. Uh, Shouldn't do that. Why? Because I'm not that important and I'm not that great, quite frankly. There are other people that can handle crises aside from me, even though I am the chief clinical officer. I, I have associate CMOs. I've got a CEO. I've got a CNO. I've got a COO. There are plenty of people. And so being able to comfortably separate yourself from that it is difficult. It's difficult for me. I even still feel guilty if I can have an afternoon of Zoom meetings and do it at home versus doing it in my office. So a lot of this we do to ourselves. Some of that is maybe because I'm a little old school and I feel I have these constructs that I need to break down that quite frankly, our younger generation is far, far better at. I think we can learn a lot from them and we need to because they have such a better grasp of the world and what it means to be a productive member of the new society that we're building. And and we need to kind of shed some of the guilt and things that we feel about what work is, what work-life balance is, what happiness is. So I think leadership has to play a critical role, not just to provide top cover, but to be actively engaged in in wellness and balance. And that, that starts with individual faculty, it starts with program directors, uh, chief residents, chairs, deans, CEOs, lead administrators, chancellors, presidents, et cetera. You've got to set that tone because I know when I'm off on the weekend, if I pick up my phone, that person calling me understands that I'm available 24-7. And then the message I send to that person is, well, if Tony's available 24-7, maybe I need to be available 24-7 to be successful. And it's an unintended message that we send when we do those things. So we got to break a lot of bad habits, quite frankly. And I think some institutions do this far better than others. Um, I think Stanford, for example, uh, has been a leader in that regard around some of the processes and programs that they've developed for their faculty and others 
around wellness, but there's so much we could do on our own that quite frankly, don't cost a dime. A lot of this, I think, is a mindset. It does require resources, but uh, there are many steps we can take to improve wellness. Um, that, that's the way I see it and what I try to practice. And when I'm with my family, I, I try to make that time as valuable and focused as I, as I can. It's uh, fascinating. You know, you're telling the story about being at home and a call from someone that works under you comes through the phone. And I thought you were going to say, if you answered that, that sends them the message that you're always reachable at home. But really what you're saying, and I think is so much more insightful, is that when you answer that call, it shows that that's what you do. And for those that work under you, for them to get to your level or to, to be your role one day, perhaps that's what it takes. And, and that's sending that message down the line, down the pipeline, that that's the culture that's accepted and that's lauded. And we need to break that chain. I thought that was actually really interesting. Yeah, and I think people understand that there's a spectrum to that. So as a leader, there are times when you have to be available because your team needs you. And so, you know, incumbent on a leader are different things than someone who is not. And then also some of that is what I didn't mention before, but I strongly believe is you got to love your people. And I say that because if you don't, they will know that you don't. And part of that, if you have People use the word family a lot about their programs and about their departments. And some mean it and some kind of mean it and some just say it. You know, being a true family means that you are available at appropriate times, but it also means that family members don't abuse that availability either. And so for me, I know every single one of my faculty intimately well. And if they need me, they're going to call me because they really, really need me. And they respect my privacy as much as I respect theirs. So so I, I want to make sure that the listeners understand that and it's not a black and white, nothing's ever black and white, quite frankly, in anything that we do, not just work-life balance or in our professions, but in pretty much anything that, that we do on, uh, on a daily basis. That's awesome. Thank you. Do you have any other advice or wisdom for our listeners before we go? Yeah. I mean, if, if the listeners are all emergency medicine or emergency medicine bound, congratulations, you made the best decision in your life. I love emergency medicine and not Woo! because... And I'm not biased. I'm telling you, it's the truth. It is the truth, man. EM is where it's at. I know that there are some challenges in emergency medicine coming down the pike. As an example, I'm very, very concerned about the current situation of the job market in emergency medicine. People are having difficulties getting jobs and maintaining contracts. I've been in phone calls with a number of individuals who have had their contracts canceled, quite frankly, by employers. I don't foresee this as a long-term problem in emergency medicine. We still need plenty of board-certified, highly qualified, and highly trained emergency medicine physicians. Um, as, as, as an example, in the state of Arkansas, and this is true probably in, in every state in the union because every state has a rural component to it, I would say that in Arkansas, the majority of providers of emergency care are not board-certified emergency physicians. Uh, we probably have two to 300 board certified emergency physicians in the state. I employ about 10%. I, I have the largest collection of, of those physicians, but we have very rural parts of the state where you know, those hospital systems can't afford a board certified emergency physician. And it's difficult to recruit to those areas. Ultimately, of course, the goal is that everyone in America receives emergency care by a board certified emergency physician. Just like if you had a heart attack, you're going to see a cardiologist. You have a stroke, you're going to see a neurologist. Why should it be any different for emergency medicine? So uh, we have plenty to prove. We have plenty to do in our profession. It is a phenomenal, phenomenal profession to be part of. I'm so proud to be an emergency physician. 
and even more proud to lead a department. It truly is a privilege for me to do that. But it's a privilege to take care of the patients we take care of every single day. They come to us at, at their worst and, and they're hoping for the best and they don't know us and they trust us. And that is something that you don't find in many professions. So enjoy that, embrace that as you go through your career, be a servant throughout your career. Being a doctor doesn't mean you're special or that you're smarter than everyone else or that you're entitled to anything. If, if you take a servant's mentality, you will be phenomenal. Your community will love you. Your patients will love you. Your colleagues will love you. Your trainees will love you as well. So I, I will get off of my soapbox of uh, platitudes and end it there. I'm happy to continue the conversation in the future if I'm ever invited back <laughs> to the podcast. Uh, I may have just sealed my fate, but it really, really is, has been a pleasure spending some time with, with you all today. Not at all a soapbox. We very much appreciate all your advice. We had uh, lots of good lessons here today with Dr. Sapal. First, we talked about kind of becoming a leader uh, and the importance of not rushing becoming a leader. It doesn't happen overnight. And as Dr. Sapal uses his own example, it doesn't happen two weeks at Harvard either. It takes a long time of development and tapping in on experts and mentors and being okay to fail, quite frankly, and fail often if you need to, to learn those lessons and become the leader that you want to be. It also takes courage to stand up for those around you and your colleagues and to build that trust of your department and to ensure that you're garnering the respect and the resources that your colleagues need. We also talked a little bit about an MBA and how it isn't a must, but uh, certainly can equip you well. And if you know that you want to be an administrator down the road, um, it's something that could give you a lot of tools at your disposal. Once you've progressed in your career and you have many obligations and wear many hats, sometimes it's difficult to go back and obtain that uh, specialized skill set. We also talked about it being a small world in emergency medicine. So always be thankful of the bridges that get you to the place that you go and <laughs> be careful of the ones that you burn as you cross them. We also talked a little bit about evidence-based medicine, kind of developing your interests or your niche. Uh, we talked about how, you know, sometimes this is serendipitous, but there's also a value to seeking out good guidance and seeking out good lessons um, and surrounding yourself by people who are productive and have similar interests and how that can kind of help facilitate your passions and, and help you be more productive. We also talked about how evidence-based medicine really can act as a structure and a backbone to informing your on-the-job decisions, especially when you become an administrator and you're setting policies and guidelines and figuring out how to have a hospital run more safely and more efficiently. We also talked about becoming a good educator um, also means becoming a good learner uh, and that there's a, a very large value in elevating those around you um, and making everybody feel valued on the team. And we also talked about the importance of, especially when you're early on in your career, you can double and triple dip your ideas. If you have a good idea, if you've put effort into a certain topic, there's no reason that you can't use that in different spins to, to get credit for it. And lastly, we talked about kind of work-life balance and the importance of having a discussion about that in the workplace with your colleagues and setting up a certain appropriate culture um, to find that balance. And then also the importance of finding support outside of work, uh, whether that be with your family or however that you do. And that it's also important to be deliberate in separating work from home. And when you're home, try and be deliberate with home and vice versa. Obviously, there's some caveats to that as you become a leader in your department, but that trying to be deliberate with the time that you spend in each uh, devotion is important. So all excellent and great advice, uh, Dr. Sapal. Thank you so much for all your time today and for sharing your experiences. We really appreciate it. 
yeah, it's it's great to be asked to be part of this. It's really fantastic. You've done a great job, Vita, summarizing and, and leading the conversation. So I applaud you and the efforts uh, to help others that are listening to this. So hopefully we've been able to bestow some wisdom, a couple pearls that they can take with them. Yes, I no doubt we have. All right. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> I really appreciate it.